this evening. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin our continuing study of 1 Corinthians. Father, thank you again for your goodness to us this day and watching over us and providing all that we need for life and godliness. Thank you for giving us your word, your scripture, your truth, and we uh, certainly need to understand and, and let it mold our thinking, our actions, our lives, and we pray that you will help us and the work of the Holy Spirit will convict us and correct us and instruct us through your word so that we might be the kind of Christians that will be honoring and pleasing to you. We pray, ask your blessing on our time this evening. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, we're looking at a new, new issue in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been spent a lot of weeks on chapters 1 through 4. And now we're looking at a problem, uh, a new issue that uh, Paul is addressing. Uh, and this is a problem, he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And it's a question of incest. So, so obviously Paul's got this on pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, testimony. Uh, I mean, he's not there at the church, but obviously it's so, so well known, he can say it's commonly reported. He's not concerned that he's going to bring this up and then they're going to say, hey, that's not true. You know, they, that's not going to happen because he's, he's, just, he's a sh certain of that, the way he addresses this. It's just well known what's going on at the church at Corinth there. He's got it probably from multiple sources who have told Paul about this. And yet, uh, the problem of incest, we notice in verse 2, uh, is not, has not been addressed. And that's what I call the sin of the church. They've had a, an amazing response, an, un, an un, almost unbelievable response to this man in their church, a member of their church who is uh, living with his stepmother. He says, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the, the man who has been doing this thing? Now, obviously, they should have put him out. Um, you know, the point is he's not repented. You know, when we have someone in our church who is engaged in open, well-known sin, immorality or something, and we confront the person, if they repent, we don't put them out of the church. You know, they, oh, yeah, that, I'm sorry, that was me. Uh, you know, we, we, we give forgiveness and to those who repent and so forth. But obviously this man hasn't repented. The church hasn't done anything about it. And so Paul finds it necessary in this letter to write and explain this. And so we are here in chapter 5, verse 3 now, 5-3. He's talked about the sin of the man, the sin of the church, and now he's talking about the admonition or the correction. What's to be done about this situation? Church hasn't done anything about it, so Paul will do something about it. Um, verse 3, For my part, even though I am not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present, verse 5, hand this man over to Satan. But let's look at all this, he says in verse 3 and 4 first. So I say here, in contrast to the Corinthians, who because they are puffed up, arrogant, as we saw in verse 2, and have done nothing, they haven't even mourned the man's sin, Paul takes decisive action. But the action cannot be his alone. It's to be a church action carried out where you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit. 
and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. So Paul's not taking action on his own. Now we've got an unusual situation here that I'm going to talk about in a moment because we've got people who could take a lot of independent action. We've got apostles, you know, and there aren't any apostles today. So church discipline, as we'll talk about, must be come from the local church. Um, and he wants the local church to do it. He's urging them, demanding that they, they do this. Um, so Paul has already determined what the church should do. And so he calls upon the church to gather together in order to take action. Now this verse is an important verse in a lot of ways because it tells us something about church government. It tells us something about church discipline. It tells us something about church membership. So let's look at various kinds of church government we have in the, in the world today. In the United States, there is three major types of church government. Now, there's variations, you know, of this or that, but there are three major types of church government. You know, if you're talking about the Methodist church, the Lutheran church, the Catholic church, uh, whatever, Baptist church, Bible church, whatever church there is, they kind of fall into one of these three categories. The first is what's called the Episcopal form of church government. Now, all these forms take their name from New Testament words. So, I'll talk about it in a minute, but you're aware that in the New Testament, the Bible speaks about pastors, elders, and overseers or bishops. So, in the New Testament, uh, bishops, the King James uses bishop, the NIV says overseer, it's this word episkopos, episkopos, the Greek word episkopos. So, in the New Testament, I won't try to prove that tonight, but we've, you know, Pastor Ken has talked about it, I've talked about it in classes, but it's easy to show, easy to show that, that these terms, episkopos, bishop, overseer, elder, presbyter, and pastor are used interchangeably of the same person. Uh, the same person is an elder, an overseer, and a uh, pastor. And I won't try to prove that tonight, but I could very easily. Now in the New Testament, the most common term for the office I hold is either episkopos, uh, which is overseer or bishop, or presbyteros, a elder, a presbyter. So that's the two terms. They're used most often, and occasionally, <laughs> rarely, pastor. Pastor is used. And so different denominations will emphasize different ones. Some churches have pastors and bishops, and some Churches just have elders and pastors. You know, Baptist churches tend to use pastors. Well, in the Episcopal form of church government, the church is ruled by bishops. There's the distinction, an, a, an incorrect, an unscriptural distinction made between the bishop, the episcopos, and the elder, the presbyter. So I just said, I'm an episcopos and I am a presbyteros. I'm an elder and a, a, a bishop, both. Just call me Bishop Combs for now. Okay, please. So uh, those terms are used interchangeably. But in the second century, that is from 100 to 200, churches started using the word episcopos, bishop, for a higher person in the church. So there were, there were in, you know, just like today, if we look around today in churches that we fellowship with or so forth, you know, or we know of, there are certain men who are pastors and others who have 
bigger ministries, bigger responsibilities, you know, and so forth. And they're kind of looked to for leadership and so forth. It just depends, you know. And the, in the second century, they started, these men started calling themselves bishop and distinguishing themselves from the presbyter, the elder, or the pastor. And that's what, that's what we call the Episcopal form of church government, a distinction between the bishop, who's up above, and under him are several pastors, several elders, or in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, priest. The term presbyter or elder in the Roman Catholic system became a priest, but that's a, that's a later development. So, and then some groups have an archbishop. So, the Episcopal form of church government, the Episcopalians, all right, Episcopalians, they have ministers or pastors in their local churches, <clears throat> and then you'll have a, a bishop over several churches, and then they might have an archbishop. You know, they do, the Archbishop of Canterbury the Archbishop of York. So the Archbishop of Canterbury is sort of the head of the Church of England. And in the United States, the Episcopal Church, which is related to that, just has bishops and they have a presiding bishop. They don't really use the term Archbishop. But other church forms of church government also have this, all the churches have this form, where they make a distinction between the pastor of a local church and a leader over multiple churches. So Lutherans are like that. Lutherans have pastors, but they have bishops. There's a bishop in Michigan, several bishops, I think. <coughs> the Episcopalians have it. Even Church of God has something like that. They may not call them a bishop, but they have people over them. So they have that form. Uh, so Lutherans have that, Episcopalians have that, Methodists have that, because Methodists are from the Episcopalians or Anglicans. So Methodists have bishops. So in this form of church government, the bishops rule the church. And so you don't have, we talk about autonomy of the local church. No one can come in and say, okay, I don't like Ken Brown. I'm gonna I want you to replace him with so-and-so. They can't do that. No one can do that. Our church is autonomous. That is, it determines its own destiny and so forth. We fellowship with other churches, but we don't, because some other pastor says that, that doesn't have any effect upon us. Our con we have congregational, as we'll see, church government. So the bishops rule the church. They control. So in a Methodist church, your pastor that you have, you don't select that pastor in a Methodist church. The bishop selects the pastor. Now, there's some differences there. I mean, sometimes they listen to the local, it's a big important Methodist church, but I mean, when I was growing up, every three, year, every three years, the pastor of each Methodist church changed. They got a new pastor every three years. The bishop would point, and they'd just keep moving around, you know. So that's the, that's the, that's, that's where you have this unscriptural distinction between the bishop, the episcopos, the overseer, and the pastor or the presbyter, the elder, so forth. That's an unscriptural distinction. And people admit that. People in the Church of England will say, yeah, it's not in the Bible, but we need it. We need it. In other words, it's, it's a development that we, 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 we know it's not what the Bible had. We know in the Bible these were all, all, these were all interchangeable of the same person, but we need this. So that's why we have it. You also have, in some churches, a Presbyterian form of church government, where you have presbyt you have uh, you know pastors or elders. Now they they would say the same thing that I just said that pastors are elders and they're bishops. They're, they would say they're all three, but they don't have complete autonomy. They have what they call sessions, that is, groups of pastors and they have presbyteries, they have synods, they have kind of a, a governmental structure. So the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, they have, uh, they have a, the, your, your local church is not completely autonomous. You just can't say, hey, we're gonna vote on this guy to be the pastor of our church. No, 
unless he's approved by the PCA, you can't make him your pastor. I mean, you, you get to select your pastor. You do get to select your pastor, but he's got to be approved by the denomination. Now, they, 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 you know, they believe there are good reasons for that. They make sure the guy's qualified and all that. But they have some power. It's not completely autonomous in the local church. We have congregational church government. So Presbyterian church government is Presbyter Presbyterians. Uh, some Bible churches have Presbyterian kind of church government. Some churches have the name Bible in there. They may have something like that. There are others that have that Presbyterian, but a lot of churches have what we have, congregational church government, where the highest authority in our church is the congregation. We could say, we could, we could vote tomorrow and remove Ken Brown as pastor. There's nothing he could do about it. We could vote it. I'm not, please don't suggest it. <laughs> we got a business meeting Sunday, but don't, <laughs> you know, but that's, yeah, cool, yeah. But, you know, we could. And the next pastor, you know, we have other pastors, we vote it. We vote them in. We, we, the congregation ultimately has, now the pastors have authority too. There's delegated authority, we, you know. But, um, and we have deacons. Now in our church, we kind of form a leadership team where we work together and so forth like that. We can sometimes be in associations, you know, we have associations with other churches and other ministry groups and like Five Stones or something. So you can have like the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, in the Southern Baptist Convention, the churches are still autonomous. They're still congregationally ruled but they group together to carry out certain duties like missions or schooling or something like that. So, you know, the, 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 the convention doesn't really tell the local church what to do, uh, but they can boot you out if they want to. If you, if, you don't, if, you don't, uh, if you don't conform to the rules of the Southern Baptist Convention, they can boot you out. In fact, there's a big, there's a big debate right now because in California, there's a very large church that is, is going to have women pastors. And that's against Southern Baptist doctrine to have women pastors. And so they're going to, this summer, they're going to talk about that and, you know, see if they can get rid, see if they can say, you're out of the convention. You're no longer a member of this convention. It's been a kind of a hot debate about that. So what we have here is Paul is, see, he's, he's reflecting congregational church government here. Notice this. Because he is saying, when you are assembled, and uh, I am with you, and so forth. Um, uh, I want you to remove this man. This is, you should get rid of this guy from your church. Now, what this also means is that there has to be something like church membership. Uh, you can't remove somebody who's not a member, you know. <laughs> you can't remove him from the church of Corinth if he's not a member of the church of Corinth, you know. So, you know, we have, we can exercise church discipline in our church. If someone, uh, for various reasons, uh, if someone was doing this in our church, we would have a congregational meeting. At, when we, we'd go through the process of church discipline, Matthew 18. There's a lot of procedures there, but ultimately if the person didn't repent, said, nope, I don't care, and he's a member of the church, we would have a meeting and we would vote. We're kicking this guy out of the church, you know? So you can't remove somebody who's not a member. I mean, we may have somebody come to our church I'm sure we've had people come to our church who, who are engaged in all kinds of sinful activities. Maybe they're, you know, they're uh, whatever, you know. Uh, maybe they're homosexual. Maybe two people come and they're homosexuals and they're living together, right? Well, we're not going to let you join our church, you know what I mean? That's the point. But we can't, we're not going to discipline you. We'll let you come, and we hope you hear the gospel, and you know, not like that. But we don't have any control over you because you're not a member of the church. We can't, we can't exercise church blending on somebody's not a member. So 
the point is, if you have church discipline, and Paul wants them to exercise church discipline, you've got to have membership. The reason I say that is because there are churches that don't have any church membership. They're called their churches, but they say, we don't have members. You just kind of come, you know. The problem for that is, how do you exercise church discipline if you don't have membership? It's also a problem for Hebrews 13, 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So, you know, the question is, who, which church leaders are we supposed to submit to? What, what church leaders are you and I supposed to submit to? Am I supposed to submit to Pastor Dorn at Inner City? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> because I'm not a member of Inner City Baptist Church any longer. You see, so uh, if it talks about submitting, there must be somebody to submit to. There's got to be somebody whose authority is over me. You know, I've got to be a member. Uh, uh, leaders and pastors have to give an account. Well, you, I, I can't, I don't have to give an account for people at Inner City Baptist Church, you know. So I'm just showing all these things show that there is something like church membership where all of us together in our church are uh, under uh, our church, under the congregation, under the pastors and so forth, responsible to them and not to others, you know, and that kind of thing. So this is an important verse about church discipline, about church membership and those kinds of things. So Paul says, uh, when you are assembled, verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, to hand this man over to Satan means to turn the man back into Satan's sphere. In contrast to the gathered church of believers who experienced the spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus and edifying gifts and loving concern for one another, this man is to be put back into the world where Satan and his principalities and powers still hold sway over people's lives to destroy them. You know, he's the God of this age and so forth. So Paul says, turn him back into the world, uh, which means excommunicate him, remove him from the membership of the church. I say here the grammar of the Greek suggests that the destruction of his flesh is the anticipated result of the man's being put out into Satan's domain. Put this man out of the church into the realm of Satan for so that what will be accomplished, the destruction of his flesh, while the express purpose of this action is redemption. I want you to put him back out there for the destruction of his flesh, and what's the ultimate purpose? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this phrase, so that he can be saved on the day of the Lord, uh, is the ultimate purpose why Paul wants to expel this man. So Paul says, we're going to put him back out there so that he, hopefully he'll be saved. Because there's real doubts if this guy's saved. We've got a real question here. We, when we expel someone for church discipline, there's a real question. We, we, we have doubts about their salvation because they're not repenting. They're an unrepentant person. They've committed, you know, some very public, obvious sin that they're unwilling to repent of. They say, no, I'm not doing that. Well, that's not a Christian attitude. That's, <laughs> that's very strange. That's, you know, what's going on here. So there's a real question here uh, about... This man. So I want you to put him out there and hopefully something will happen so that we can say he will be saved. Now I say here the main question to be determined is what did Paul actually expect as a result of this man being returned to the sphere of Satan's power for the destruction of the flesh? Okay, what is he what exactly does this does Paul expect to happen? And what is this destruction of the flesh? One common view is that the phrase, the destruction of the flesh, refers to physical suffering 
that would ultimately lead to physical death. So I, I remember that view when I was coming along. Yeah, put him back out there, and so he'll suffer physically. God will punish him, and he will, uh, destruction of his body, destruction of his flesh, the body. So uh, he'll, you know, he'll be punished, you know, in that sense. I say there are problems with this view. Paul's ultimate purpose for this man is his salvation, not his death, you know, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And it's difficult to see why his death would result in his salvation. You know, if you say, okay, let's put him out there so God will punish him and he'll die. Okay, <laughs> you know, that, is that necessarily going to result in his salvation? Second, nowhere does Paul use the, the Paul express the death in terms of destruction of the flesh. I mean, we would. We would say, yeah, when I die, the flesh will be destroyed. You know, we could say that. We'd, oh, yeah, I, got, I understand what that means. But Paul never says that. He never uses that expression, the destruction of the flesh. Here the phrase stands in contrast to the saving of the spirit. And it's simply foreign to Paul's usage for the flesh-spirit contrast to refer to the body as doomed to destruction. But the spirit as destined for salvation. So if you read enough of Paul, you'll see he commonly uses this, this contrast, flesh-spirit, flesh-spirit. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the fruit of the spirit is this, but the lust of the flesh is this, Galatians 5, you know. Here's what happens. Here's the results of the flesh. You get all these sinful things. Uh, and their flesh, of course, as it commonly does in Paul, the word sarx means the sinful nature. I say here, such a view in, stands in contradiction to Paul's expressed doctrine of the resurrection of the body. The flesh is not destroyed. Third, the further instruction in verse 11 that the Corinthians are not to associate with this man, don't even eat with him, implies no immediate death is in view. So I don't think that view is correct, that we're going to put him out there so his body will be destroyed doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Therefore, it seems clear, I say, that Paul did not intend for the man to die. This would not rule out, however, some form of remedial suffering. Now, yeah, if we, if we exercise church discipline and somebody won't repent, we put them out there, yeah, God may exercise church discipline. He can do that to us in the church, but he could do it you know, to a person who is sinning and not obedient. That's true. However, what we have in this verse is probably a typical Pauline contrast between flesh and spirit, where flesh denotes the sinful nature. The NIV 84 said, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. I, I think that's what he means here by flesh. Sarks is the sinful nature. Um, what Paul is desiring here then by having this man put outside the believing community put outside, you know, away from other believers was the destruction of his sinful tendencies, his sinful disposition, what was carnal that was controlling him so that ultimately he could be saved. Uh, whether he's actually saved or lost now, you know, um, so the destruction of the flesh belongs to this kind of language we use of crucifying the flesh. Paul says in Galatians 5, Romans 7, we are to crucify the flesh. That is, we are to say no, put to death the sinful desires that we have, say no to those sinful desires. So the idea is we put this man out here um, and hopefully... Uh, what will happen to him is that hopefully he's out there in the world and if he's a true believer, he'll come to his senses. You know, as long as this person is in the church and we're saying, hey, brother, <laughs> love you, brother, and all this kind of stuff, you know, and he's engaging in this incest and all this, is he going to change his... Is, <laughs> Is he going to change his action? Is he going to repent? You know, we're just letting it go. He's not going to, and he's not responding to the church at Corinth. So the idea is, the reason we exercise church discipline is not to punish people, you know. 
We don't exercise church discipline to punish people. It has a remedial purpose. It's to put them outside so hopefully they'll wake up. Now they're cut off from the Christian, Christian fellowship. They see what it's like to be out in the world. You know, they, they, they come to their senses. God may, in fact, chase, chasten them and whatever it might be, but we're trying to get them to wake up. We're trying to get people to, you know, say, this is, you're, you're on the wrong course here. And you've left us no, no recourse. We can't just keep ignoring this. And so our, our final recourse, if you won't repent after, you know, a lot of counseling, a lot of help, a lot of people going to you, praying for you, working with you, then we got to put you out. And hopefully, you know, God will work in a way that, that these sinful tendencies will be destroyed. And ultimately, you'll come to yourself and you'll be saved. Because if you don't, we got real doubts about your salvation. You know, we don't really... If you never, if you never repent, then man, is this person saved or not? So the intent of the action is the man's salvation. So he's not being turned over to Paul for the destruction, you know, of the flesh or uh, that's an idea quite foreign to the New Testament. It's, it's being excluded from the community of the Christian community, you know, and all those, all the benefits of that. Uh, so uh, that's what Paul wants them to do. Uh, verse uh, 6 so for the sin for the sin of the man excommunicate him that is exercise church discipline put him out of the church for the church what happens to the church the church has indulged this kind of sinful behavior and Paul says you need to purge this from your midst Paul now gives the theological reason for his actions he recommends in verses 1 through 5. Your boasting is not good. Remember, they were just kind of boasting about this. I mean, wow. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? So Paul's using a, an illustration here. Uh, I'm not a cook or anything, but I, I understand that you put a little yeast in there and it stuff bread rises and stuff like that. It affects the whole thing, you know, just a little bit. Uh, what is that expression? A, a spoiled apple affects the whole barrel or destroys, you know, you, you, you can ruin the whole thing. You put a, an apple in, I guess you, the idea is what? You put an apple in a barrel with a worm and then it's going to be all through all the apples and so forth like that. So you've got a bad apple among you here, and you've got to get rid of this. Uh, besides the sin of the man, Paul was primarily concerned with the sin of the church itself. He now returns to that concern by picking up the theme of their boasting from verse 2. This boasting of theirs is not good. One commentator says that a church exposed to such corruption would do well to sing in a lower key. So I say Paul attempts to show them the absurdity of their boasting. What they should know in this case comes in the form of a proverb. A little yeast leavens the whole bunch, batch of dough, similar to a bad apple. And the New Testament, yeast or leaven became a symbol of the process by which evil spreads gradually in the community until the whole has been affected by it. Remember, like Mark 8. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast, the leaven, remember, yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So the problem is they're not taking this matter seriously. Either the evil itself or their danger of being contaminated by it. So that's another reason for church discipline. You know, if we allowed this man who committed incest to remain in your church, that could affect other people. You know, well, he can do that, so, you know, we could do other things. Uh, verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast so that there may be a new unleavened batch 
as you really are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The proverb about yeast in verse 6 naturally suggests imagery from Paul's own Jewish background. Specifically, the two religious festivals of Passover and unleavened bread. As part of the festival, the Jews were to clean out or get rid of the old leaven. In this context, this refers to the more removal of the incestuous man in verse 5. You know, get rid of this yeast this, this, that's contaminating you. Remember, as part of the festival, they were to get rid of that yeast. Uh, they were supposed to sweep out their houses. You know, they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they were supposed to eat unleavened bread, you know, for, and so they had to clean their houses so there was no yeast around to affect their bread. Um, I mean, have you eaten unleavened bread before? It doesn't taste great, does it, or does it? Some people, do some people like it? Do you like it? Oh, pita bread's unleavened? Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. But um, it doesn't seem like regular bread. It doesn't, doesn't rise and stuff. And applying the imagery I say here, however, Paul expresses himself in a way that's foreign, foreign to his own understanding of the doctrine of salvation. We do not get rid of sin in our lives in order to become saved. You know, he says... Get rid of this sin, this old batch of yeast, so that you may be a new batch. If you take that literally, get rid of your sin so you can be a new creature in Christ. You know, that's not how it works. <laughs> Salvation is by grace. Yeah, we have to repent of sin, but it's not moralism. You know, it's not clean up my life enough and then I'll be good enough to go to heaven. So, I mean, this proverb could sound like that. You know, get rid of this and then you'll be new. Uh, we don't get rid of sin in our lives to become saved, become a new unleavened batch. Therefore, Paul merely qualifies it with, as you really are. You know, get rid of this so you can be an unleavened batch, but you really are that already. I mean, be what you are, as I'll say. Uh, Paul has many imperatives in his writing, things that we Christians must do, imperatives, commands. But even though these commands must be obeyed, they are not simply legalistic requirements through which we gain favor with God. We obey because of God's previous work of grace in our lives. God has done something for us, what is called the indicative. Indicative means a statement of fact, what God has done. So the Bible says God has done this. And therefore, we obey him what's called the imperative. You know, and many people suggest that's how epistles are, Paul's epistles, many of epistles. I mean, Paul taught Ephesians, and I think like one through three is sometimes called the indicative. Here's what God has done for you. And then now, the latter part, here's what you should do. Here's the commands. Here's the imperative. Um... So the, the, the imperative reminds that we are, to come, uh, we are to become what we already are, the indicative. So Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So there's salvation. We are actually light. We are, you know, we are this. Well, live as children of light. Be what you are. You know, here's the indicative. Here's what God has done. He saved you. You're new creatures in Christ. Okay, now live like that. Live as children of light. And that's what Paul is sort of saying this. Get rid of this old batch so that you can become, you can display what you really are and what you should be. So right at the point in Paul's argument where the imperative sounds as if it comes first, get rid of, he reminds them that they, what they must become is what they already are by, God, by the grace of God, a new unleavened, bunch as you really are. Um, so the point is that we Christians have been freed from sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. You've been set free from the dominion of sin. The sin nature no longer dominates us as it once did. And therefore, Paul says in, in Romans 6, therefore, we have to live, we have to avoid sin 
and live in obedience to God's command. So the imperative, the command to do this, is not possible without the indicative. That's why, we, that's why we're opposed to a lot of watered-down Christianity. A lot of watered-down Christianity, what you'll find in a lot of churches, is just be a good person. I mean, they talk about Christ, talk about Jesus, but, you know, if you're good enough, you'll get into heaven. You know, if your good works outweigh your bad works, then you'll make it, you know. Be, be good. Um, but that's not the case. The fact, we, 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 we obey God, we have the ability to obey God because of what God has done. Still keeping the image of the Passover, I say, Paul provided the fundamental reason why the Corinthian believers are truly unle unleavened. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ died on the cross. The slaying of the lamb is what led to the Jews being unleavened. So they had the Passover, then they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were to eat, eat this bread that was unleavened. So too with us, Paul says, our lamb has been sacrificed through his death. We receive forgiveness from our past and freedom for the new life in Christ. Therefore, Paul says, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul now brings this part of the argument to its logical conclusion. The Corinthians are to remove the incestuous man from the church, which is like cleansing the house of leaven in order that they might become what they are, God's new unleavened batch in Corinth, which makes them God's new people. What makes them, what makes them God's new people is the sacrifice of Christ, our Passover lamb. Verse 8 continues this imagery, this illustration of the feast. Let's keep the festival. Paul broadens the application of the death of Christ to the Christian life as a whole. Let's keep the feast, the festival, not with the unleavened bread with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So now he's broadening this out to the Christian life. The present tense of the verb that is translated, let us keep, speaks of a continuous celebration of the feast. The whole Christian life is a celebration of the work of Christ on our behalf. But what is the Christian equivalent to all the Jewish celebration, to the Jewish celebration? In its first instance, it reflects the prolonged seven-day festival during which the Jews were forbidden to eat anything unleavened. In the same way, on the basis of the crucifixion of Christ, God's people are to keep an ongoing feast of celebration of God's forgiveness by holy living. I mean, that should be our motivation for living holy. That should be our motivation. It's this forgiveness that we have through Christ. And that's what the Passover and unleavened bread uh, illustrate. This is at least as an elimination of the kinds of sexual immorality represented by the excluded man. But now the old leaven is further qualified in terms of malice and wickedness. The death of Christ has freed us from the power of sin, no longer slaves to sin. We're to live as those who have been set free from sin. The Christian life, which can be called unleavened, is also described in terms of sincerity and truth. These terms describe the behavior that's fully authentic, without sham or deceit. So the Corinthians are to become what they are. Remember, he used this language of God's holy temple. Don't you know? that you yourselves as the church are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. And so that's an alternative to the malice and wickedness of their surrounding culture. And of course the incestuous man just ruins that picture. So that's what we talk about, you know, testimony and our church's testimony and our testimony, you know, we're trying to, we're trying the best we can as sinners to present something different than what the world is doing out there. Um, and the world's doing some pretty wicked stuff these days, you know, so uh, it's important. Well, then he has a necessary explanation here in verses 9 through 13. It might appear that Paul is moving on to a new topic in these verses. 
because he begins to discuss a misunderstanding of his former letter written by himself to the church. But this is only partly the case. Paul is resolving an issue from a former letter to be sure, but one that's closely related to the present concern. The clarification that we see in verse 11 is intended to forbid any kind of association with a man who claims to be a believer but is sexually immoral, as we'll see. And that's exactly what verses 1 through 8 are talking about. We're talking about a man in the church at Corinth who claims to be a believer. The church accepts him as a believer, but is sexually immoral. So Paul's now going back to something he said in a previous letter, but he's still dealing with the Corinthians' arrogance in the context of this incestuous man. And so their arrogance here that Paul has been talking about, they're puffed up, they're arrogant, is probably related to how they, what the, how they responded to the previous letter. You know, it's hard to know whether you call it a misunderstanding or whether you call it a deliberate misinterpretation of what Paul said in a previous letter. Let's talk about that former letter, a former letter misunderstood. So, if we think about Paul's letters to the church at Corinth, what we find out from this verse, verses 9 and 10, that Paul wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians. Remember we said uh, Paul went to Corinth and established a church in Acts 18. And uh, we saw last week, you know, in church... Uh, about Apollos, and then Paul goes back to Ephesus in chapter 19, and he spends three years there in Ephesus. And I said when we started this class that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus around AD 55, something like that. Uh, remember, we know, I mentioned when we started this class, one of the dates we are pretty certain about is when Paul was in Corinth. Paul was in Corinth because there he was brought before a proconsul, who was the governor, Gallio. And the proconsul Gallio was a very well-known man in the Roman Empire. He's mentioned in Roman literature. He's a very well-known man. And he was the governor there. And he became the governor uh, in AD 51, July of AD 51. So we have a pretty good idea when Paul was in Corinth. And we kind of extrapolate from that. Okay, it took him this long to get here, and he went here. And so we're, we know he was in, in Ephesus, you know, 54, 55, something like that. And so he wrote this 1 Corinthians, the letter that's in our Bible, but he wrote a letter before that that he mentions here. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. <clears throat> I mean, Paul had no iPhone. He had no email. He didn't even have regular mail. There was no mail, there was mail service, but it was only for government officials. If you wanted to send a letter to your friend in Rome, you had to find somebody who would carry it to Rome for you. So, uh, you know, it wasn't like you could just send a, mail, a letter off. Or so so uh, there's only 13 letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament. <clears throat> and I think we can be pretty confident the man wrote more than 13 letters in his life, you know. Uh, I mean, I write 13 emails a day almost, seems like sometimes, you know. <laughs> Not that many, but sometimes I write four or five or six a day. So, uh, so the point is, God didn't put everything Paul wrote in the letter into the New Testament. God only put in the New Testament, only preserved for us what he wanted us to have in the canon, you know, what, he, what, he, what we needed. Uh, as Christians. So Paul wrote another letter here. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, that's my former letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. So I already wrote to you about this. I'm dealing with it now, but I wrote to you about this. 
not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral. You know, when I said don't associate with sexually immoral people, I didn't mean people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world, right? <laughs> you know? Uh, we, can't, we can't get away from people who commit sexual immorality. If you work at, wherever you work at, if you work at Ford or some place, you know, you're going to work with all kinds of people who may be doing all kinds of things. <laughs> and, you know, Paul didn't mean, you know, that. He wasn't talking about that. He's talking about association in the church, obviously. So Paul's still dealing with the church's failure to have done something about the incestuous man. These verses tell us... <clears throat> that the failure is related to their misunderstanding of a former letter, particularly the command not to associate with sexually immoral people. Somehow the Corinthians understood Paul to be saying that they should not associate with people in the world who were sexually immoral. Now, I say that I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt here. I mean, it seems strange that they would think Paul means that, you know, but... I, you know, it's hard to, you know, so the, did they just purposely misinterpret? Hey, Paul, we know what you wrote there, but man, how, we can't do that. They probably responded, you know, by either ignoring his letter or criticizing his advice. Um, but Paul says, you know, you've, you, you've misunderstood, you've misperceived what I was trying to get at. He didn't have in mind the secular people secular people in the world who are sexually immoral, but those who are greedy swindlers or idolaters, you know, he didn't mean those people. They're all around. Idolaters are all around Corinth. It's full of idolatry. They'd have to become a recluse. And, you know, there's some people who do that, the Amish or, you know, the, like that. They, they just live a reclusive life. So, you know, but that's not, the Christian way, really. Um, they just have to withdraw from the world. But he's going to explain in verse 11, they surely, must have not, they, must, they surely must have known that he didn't really mean that. So he has a further clarification, verse 11. Now I am writing to you now in this letter that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. So someone who claims to be a Christian but is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or slanderer or drunker or swindler, don't even eat with such people. Now, we're obviously talking about people who, who don't repent, who, who are these kinds of things and they won't repent and so forth. Whatever the reason for the misunderstanding, you know, whether it was, with his formal letter, Paul will now make sure that there will be no uncertainty about his position by outlining his former position in explicit terms. But now I'm writing to you, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister who acts in a way of the unspoken, ways spoken of in the former letter. So, um, Paul is not advocating that only sinless people can be members of the Christian church. But we're talking about people who persist in a sinful lifestyle, right? We're always talking about people who persist in a sinful lifestyle. Those of us who belong to Christ have to, as a matter of our Christian life, put off the former way of life. Um, you know, Ken, Pastor Ken always talks a lot about these verses. Uh, I think, you know, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, and greed. Because of these, the wrath of God's coming. You used to walk in these ways, the way you, you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things, such as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other. Since you have, spoken, you have taken off the old self with its practice, put on the new self, which is being renewed, and knowledge in the image of its creator. So... Um, Paul is talking about not um, um, Paul is talking about those who persist in these kinds of sins, not those who struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. 
We all struggle with sin. But those who persist in these sins and will not repent of these kinds of things, they have to be disciplined by the church. Church discipline does not say you're going to hell, but the church doesn't find your profession of faith credible. That's what we're saying. If we discipline somebody out of the church, we're saying we don't find your profession of faith. We don't know. There's no way we can say absolutely who's saved and who's lost. But you've made a profession of faith, and that means a certain kind of life. Uh, that you may, we are all struggling with sin, but we're not persisting in these sins. I say to the four sins mentioned in verse 10, two more are now added, slander and drunkard. So that means slander has all kinds of ideas of verbal abuse, maligning. Drunkard refers to, you know, someone given the drunkenness, carousing that's associated with it. Um, I mean, we don't put out, we don't kick people out of our church who are alcoholics and struggle with alcohol, you know. But if someone won't deal with it, won't try to do something, won't try to find some help or ask for help or, you know, that kind of thing, then it's a different situation. The final prohibition, don't even eat, probably implies more than the Lord's table, which would be obvious. So he's probably meaning don't engage in social intercourse with this person. So if we put someone out of the church, you know, that means you need to put some distance. Now, you know, we're always trying to work with a person like that still. We might be saying... Let's get together for a while. I want to talk to you, brother. I want to, you know, this is a problem. You know, we're not saying you can't engage the person. But we're saying you just can't be best buddies again. You know, you can't just act like nothing's happening. Hey, yeah, you're, you're, you're engaged in this sexual immorality and I don't care because I love you, you know, as a brother, as a Christian. So that's what Paul is saying. So they have to, Put some distance. So this guy will know the church doesn't accept your profession of faith. It's, we think you're in danger here, brother. We want you to repent and change. Well, then we have a simple explanation and application. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. With these short sentences, Paul concludes his argument. First in verse 12, there are two rhetorical questions about those whom the church does and does not judge. What business is it of mine to judge those outside? Are you not to judge those inside? So as these two rhetorical questions about what God, the church does not and does judge, they don't judge those outside, they are to judge those inside. And these questions are given their appropriate responses in the two statements of verse 13. God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from you. Neither he nor they are to pass sentence on people of the world and their present existence. The reason for that is simple. God will judge those outside. But for now, the church takes the world as it finds it. So this doesn't mean the church has no responsibility to speak out against the sins of the world. It doesn't say we can't speak out against sinful things. You know, it doesn't mean we can't say anything from the pulpit. We, it doesn't mean we can't say abortion is wrong. <laughs> we can say abortion is wrong. You know, we can say this thing is sinful. Uh, but the, the church is not to, not the, the, the Corinthians are not to judge the world in the way they are to judge the incestuous man. So we don't judge those outside the church in the way we judge those inside. In that sense, the church has nothing to do with the world in that sense. Exactly the opposite, however, I say, must prevail within the Christian church itself. Are you not to judge those inside? 
and this is what the entire passage has been arguing here. And so he quotes here Deuteronomy 17, 7, expel the wicked man from among you. Exercise church discipline. All right, it's 8.15, thank you. And we will, Lord willing, see you next time.